This is American Origin Stories. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. What is the true birthday of America as the land of the free? It could be August 6th, 1965. After a seven-month pressure campaign, Martin Luther King Jr. pushed Congress and President Johnson into finally signing the Voting Rights Act to enforce the 15th Amendment to the Constitution 95 years after the amendment had been ratified. A hundred years African Americans were being hit with poll taxes, literacy tests, every form of bureaucratic restriction to block their votes from being counted, not to mention harassment, intimidation, and violence. Without the power to vote, you don't have a voice in your government, so you don't have freedom. And therefore, in a very real sense, America's birthday as a country with any hope for liberty and justice for all, is only 60 years old. Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. is considered by most to be one of the greatest heroes in American history, a founding father of freedom and a role model for all Americans. The campaign for a federal holiday on Martin Luther King's birthday started right after his assassination in 1968. But that was a very controversial idea. Dr. King was considered radical. You know how many Americans disapproved of Dr. King in 1968? Take a guess. 75%. North Carolina Republican Senator Jesse Helms called Dr. King's opposition to the Vietnam War Marxism and submitted a 300-page document to the Senate alleging Dr. King associated with communists. New York Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan called Jesse Helms' document a, quote, packet of filth, threw it on the floor, and he stomped on it. It took until 1982 for Coretta Scott King, that's Dr. King's wife, to present Congress with a petition that had six million signatures on it to make Martin Luther King Day an official holiday. That may be the largest petition in favor of any issue in U.S. history. 
at least in the time it was. What are we to celebrate? His life? His legacy? What was his legacy? Dr. King was a reverend, and he preached what many would consider the basic tenets of Christianity. Peace on earth, feeding and housing the poor, respect and love for all people, regardless of color or creed. So what does that mean in policy terms? It literally means universal voting rights, an end to imperialist wars, reparations, and a minimum basic income for everybody. Now, these aren't my extrapolations. This is what Dr. King said. And it's not a surprise that these ideas, a mere 60 years or so after his assassination, would be considered as radical as the man himself, who supposed he was simply carrying on the message of another radical. In Dr. King's words, was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? Quote, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Was not Thomas Jefferson an extremist? Then he quotes Jefferson. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. End quote. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, says Dr. King, but what kind of extremist will we be? Will we be extremists for hate, or will we be extremists for love? Dr. King talked about Cavalry Hill which is the biblical location where Jesus was crucified alongside criminals, quote, one on the right hand and the other on the left, end quote, according to the book of Luke. So Dr. King asks, quote, will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must not forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thusly fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and therefore rose above his environment. What an amazing way to put it. This was a powerful challenge that Dr. King brought before the American people, whether Christian or not, has no bearing. The message of the story is universal. In 1964... Dr. King spoke at his Nobel Peace Prize awarding, and he said, quote, The rich nations must use their vast resources of wealth to develop the underdeveloped, school the unschooled, feed the unfed. Ultimately, a great nation is a compassionate nation. No individual or nation can be great if it does not have a concern for the least of these. In Dr. King's book called Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, which he wrote in 1967. He said, quote, The time has come for us to civilize ourselves by the total, direct, and immediate abolition of poverty. Regarding reparations, King said that black Americans, after being freed from slavery, were, quote, not given any land. land to make that freedom meaningful. And you know, it was something like having a man in jail for years and years, and then you suddenly discover that this man is innocent. And go to him and say, now you are free. The man's been unjustly jailed for 35 or 40 years, and you just put him out of jail saying, now you are free. Don't give him any bus fare to get to town, no money to buy any clothes, 
No money to get something to eat. This is what happens to the black man in this country. Dr. King wasn't saying anything new. The Quaker John Woolman wrote in 1769, on the eve of the American Revolution regarding those held in slavery, quote, a heavy account lies against us as a civil society for oppressions committed against people who did not injure us. And if the particular case of many individuals were fairly stated, it would appear that there was considerable due to them, end quote. Less than 100 years later, the new nation had a civil war over slavery, and the side fighting for freedom won. And the most famous, most popular, most eloquent freedom fighters in the country were calling for reparations. Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth. And this isn't without context either. Jump ahead 80 years after World War II, Germany paid $90 billion. $90 billion to survivors and descendants of the Holocaust. The Allied forces dismantled German industries, dismantled their rail system, their merchant fleet. Ships were handed over, two and a half billion dollars in stocks, steel, coal, all kinds of industrial production was seized and transported out. Intellectual property was part of the reparations package. Patents, copyrights, trademarks worth $123 billion, it's estimated, in today's dollars. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. American author Ta-Nehisi Coates gave us this famous piece in The Atlantic nearly a decade ago now called The Case for Reparations. And in the byline, he writes, quote, 250 years of slavery, 90 years of Jim Crow, 60 years of separate but equal, 35 years of racist housing policy, until we reckon with our compounding moral debts, America will never be whole, end quote. And therein, Coates follows the history of a nation that cut an enormous number of Americans out of the home mortgage market, and that alone leads to incredible disparities for those who have lived for generations under white supremacy to endure disproportionately high poverty rates and lack of equal access. There's a sociologist named Dalton Conley, and he studied the vast differences in graduation rates across racial categories. And he writes, quote, what would be the effect of wealth redistribution on a vast scale? My own research using national data to follow black and white adolescents into adulthood shows when we compare families with the same net worth, blacks are more likely to finish high school than whites and are equally likely to complete a bachelor's degree. 
racial differences in welfare rates disappear. Thus, one generation after reparations were paid, racial gaps in education should close, eliminating the need for affirmative action. He goes on to say, the unpopularity of this radical plan would no doubt be unprecedented. There are also no guarantees that reparations would be a magic bullet for lingering racial problems. That said, it remains vital, especially during Black History Month, to explore formulas and reparations to keep this debate alive. It's important because each resulting dollar amount implies a theory of race, history, and equal opportunity, and that includes the figure implicit in our current policy, zero, which rests on the most absurd assumption of all that slavery didn't matter. Dalton Conley wrote that 20 years ago. Dr. King said it more succinctly hearkening back again to the origin story of Christianity itself. Quote, I was hungry and you fed me not. I was naked and you clothed me not. I needed shelter and you didn't give it to me. I needed a drink of water. And in a while, that's three-fourths water, you made me pay a water bill. Eleven months before his assassination, Dr. King said this, America freed the slaves. America freed the slaves in 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base. And yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate, and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. Dr. King said there must be a revolution of values in our country. There must be a revolution of values in our country. As Jimmy Baldwin said on one occasion, what advantage is there in being integrated into a burning house? And I feel that uh, there is a need for a revolution of values in America because some of the values that presently exist are certainly out of line with the uh, values and the idealistic structure uh, that brought our nation into being. Unfortunately, we haven't been true to these ideals, and many of the values of uh, so-called white middle-class society are values uh, that need to be reviewed and uh, re-evaluated, and in a real sense, they need to be changed. So I think the young people in the Negro community who are raising these questions are raising some very profound questions about our total society. In other words, they are saying 
that there must be a restructuring of the architecture uh, of our society where values are concerned. For Dr. King, prescriptions on reparations for descendants of slavery and for those born into a structure built on the framework of slavery includes all of us. It includes poor people of every color and category. It includes descendants of Native American Holocaust. What are the details of this prescription? They're explained in Dr. King's 1967 book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community? And he writes, One fact stands out. There are twice as many white poor as Negro poor in the United States, his word. Up to recently, we have proceeded from the premise that poverty is a consequence of multiple evils. Lack of education, restricting job opportunities, poor housing, which stultified home life, and suppressed initiative, fragile family relationships, which distorted personality development. The logic of this approach suggested that each one of these causes be attacked one by one, hence a housing program to transform living conditions, improved educational facilities to furnish tools for better job opportunities, and family counseling to create better personal adjustments were designed. And in combination, these measures were intended to remove the causes of poverty. While none of these remedies in itself is unsound, all have a fatal disadvantage. The programs never proceeded on a coordinated basis or at a similar rate of development. So housing measures have fluctuated at the whims of legislative bodies. They have been piecemeal and pygmy. Educational reforms have been more sluggish and entangled in bureaucratic stalling and economy-dominated decisions. Family assistance stagnated in neglect and then suddenly was discovered to be the central issue on the basis of hasty and superficial studies. At no time has a total, coordinated, and fully adequate program been conceived. And as a consequence, fragmentary and spasmodic reforms have failed to reach down to the profoundest needs of the poor. In addition to the absence of coordination and sufficiency, the programs of the past all have another common failing. They are indirect. Each seeks to solve poverty by first solving something else. I am now convinced that the simplest approach will prove to be the most effective. The solution to poverty is to abolish it directly by a now widely discussed measure, the guaranteed income. And here Dr. King quotes Henry George, a political economist who was very popular in the 1800s, who sold millions of copies of his book, Progress and Poverty. In 1879, George writes, quote, the fact is, that the work which improves the condition of mankind, the work which extends knowledge and increases power and enriches literature and elevates thought, is not done to secure a living. It is not the work of slaves driven to their task either by the lash of a master or by animal necessities. It is the work of men who perform it for their own sake, and not that they may get more to eat or drink or wear or display in a state of society where want is abolished, work of this sort could be enormously increased. King writes, quote, This proposal is not a civil rights program in the sense that that term is currently used. The program would benefit all the poor, 
including the two-thirds of them who are white. I hope that both Negro and white will act in coalition, his word, to effect this change because their combined strength will be necessary to overcome the fierce opposition we must realistically anticipate. Dr. King goes on to say, Our nation's adjustment to a new mode of thinking will be facilitated if we realize that for nearly 40 years, two groups in our society have already been enjoying a guaranteed income. Indeed, it is a system of our confused social values that these two groups turn out to be the richest and the poorest. The wealthy, who own securities, have always had an assured income. And their polar opposite, the relief client, has been guaranteed an income, however minuscule, through welfare benefits. John Kenneth Galbraith has estimated that $20 billion a year would affect a guaranteed income. End quote. Now for some modern context. Right now we spend $20 billion a year on fossil fuel subsidies. I think as of August we'll have spent $13 billion in spending for Ukraine. We give Israel about $4 billion a year, the last I looked. The Defense Department, the Pentagon, has an $800 billion a year budget. And to put a finer point on that, the U.S. military also has the distinction of being the only U.S. government agency to have never passed a comprehensive audit. According to the Department of Defense Comptroller Mike McCord, the Pentagon has only managed to account for 39% of its $3.5 trillion in assets. I think that is why one example of many that Dr. King in his report to the Southern Christian leadership staff in 1967 wrote, We must recognize that we can't solve our problem now until there is a radical redistribution of economic and political power. This means a revolution of values and other things. We must see now that the evils of racism, economic exploitation, and militarism are all tied together. You can't really get rid of one without getting rid of the others. And back to his book, Chaos or Community, he writes, quote, The curse of poverty has no justification in our age. It is socially as cruel and blind as the practice of cannibalism at the dawn of civilization, when men ate each other because they had not yet learned to take food from the soil or to consume the abundant animal life around them. The time has come for us to civilize ourselves by the total, direct, and immediate abolition of poverty. Dr. King was so serious about this, he called for changing the U.S. Constitution. He wanted an economic Bill of Rights, and he was not the first person to do so. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt said the same to Congress in his State of the Union on January 11, 1944. He also proposed a second Bill of Rights. Now, Roosevelt is the president who pulled the country out of a depression, broke up monopolies, created the middle class, and defeated the Nazis. He's considered by most historians to be one of the top three presidents of all time, alongside Lincoln and Washington. The second Bill of Rights included the right to a useful job, the right to earn enough for food and clothing and recreation, the right of every farmer to raise and sell products at a return, which will give him and his family a decent income, the right of every business person, large or small, to trade in an atmosphere of freedom from unfair competition and domination by monopolies, here or abroad, the right of every family to a decent home, the right to adequate medical care, 
and the opportunity to achieve and enjoy good health, the right to adequate protection from economic fears which come with old age, sickness, accident, or unemployment, and the right to a good education. Roosevelt said these rights spell security, and after defeating the Nazis, that's what he called for the United States to lead in doing. President Roosevelt said, America's own rightful place in the world depends America's in large part. America's own rightful place in the world depends in large part upon how fully these and similar rights have been carried into practice for all our citizens. For unless there is security here at home, there cannot be lasting peace in the world. President Roosevelt died before he had a chance to lead the country into seeing a second Bill of Rights come to fruition, as did Dr. King. Keep in mind that Dr. King and Roosevelt's challenge to the nation was only 24 years apart. 1944 to 1968, it's only two and a half decades. So how did Dr. King propose to do it? He called for a million people to march on Washington and engage in massive civil disobedience to pressure Congress to pass this Economic Bill of Rights, including a minimum income for all Americans, health care for all Americans. And that is when he was killed, leaving us the entirety of his mission and speeches and writings, which we so rarely revisit, which is why we are here doing so right now. The stakes are not in the past, but in the future. Dr. King wrote, quote, There is an Old Testament prophecy of the sins of the fathers being visited upon the third and the fourth generations. The American people are infected with racism. That is the peril. Paradoxically, they are also infected with democratic ideals. That is the hope. We have, through massive nonviolent action, an opportunity to avoid a national disaster and create a new spirit of class and racial harmony. We can write another luminous moral chapter in American history. All of us are on trial in this troubled hour, but time still permits us to meet the future with a clear conscience. End quote. And so in closing, some might say plainly that any American political movement which truly values the ideals and origins of its Christian roots or has the intention to extend those common values to all of humanity, regardless of color or creed, as Dr. King did, would adopt as their platform the agenda of Martin Luther King Jr. That would be the most honest and honorable way to celebrate his life, his mission, and what he died for. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.